My name is Eugene Debs Hartke, and I was born in 1940. I was named at the behest of my maternal grandfather, Benjamin Wills, who was a socialist and an atheist, and nothing but a groundskeeper at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana, in honor of Eugene Debs of Terre Haute, Indiana. Debs was a socialist and a pacifist and a labor organizer who ran several times for the presidency of the United States of America and got more votes than has any other candidate nominated by a third party in the history of this country. Debs died in 1926 when I was a negative 14 years old. The year is 2001 now. If all had gone the way a lot of people thought it would, Jesus Christ would have been among us again and the American flag would have been planted on Venus and Mars. No such luck. At least the world will end, an event anticipated with great joy by many. It will end very soon, but not in the year 2000, which has come and gone. From that, I conclude that God Almighty is not heavily into numerology. I thought it might be a slow blues, not as a requiem for the human species, but rather as a commentary by one of the most witty observers of the human scene around and about, one of our best novelists and most imaginative, Kurt Vonnegut. His most recent novel is called Hocus Pocus, and it's a beauty. And I was thinking to myself, Hocus Pocus is published by uh, Putnam. And I was thinking, Kurt, that were Mark Twain alive today, and we think of Mark Twain in the latter years being looking at the world as through a glass darkly, at the same with that biting wit, he might have written this sort of book. Well, you know, he never even saw the First World War. And I, well, for our sake, not for his, I wish he had seen it. As I, I, I think he probably would have felt fallen silent. I think he would have been speechless. And so we're two world wars up on him that he doesn't know about them. Yeah, he was talking about the human race and its dumbness and hypocrisies. He spoke of its glories, too, at certain times, but toward the end, speaking of the self-destructive nature. And here you come along with Hocus Pocus. And let's begin with Eugene Debs Hartke, who is the man telling the story and the nature of the memoir he is writing and how he's doing it. Well, he is writing in the year 2001, and uh, he is in prison. And looking back on his life, as he said there, he was born in 1940, and he was a career soldier. He was uh, became a, he was a West Point graduate and uh, lieutenant colonel at the time of the evacuation of our embassy in Saigon, and he was in charge of that, of... of, of uh, Kicking gooks off the oh, incidentally, <laughs> off the helicopter. He kicked uh, gooks off the helicopter, but also in evacuating Saigon, he made it clear they will not use bad words or profanity. So, so when the excrement hit the air conditioner, yes, that's the, the end of the war. That's the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And uh, as uh, his grandfather Benjamin Wills, who got him uh, named in honor of Eugene Debs, also told him that if you swore people could stop listening to you as they could say to themselves, I don't have to hear this. I don't have to listen to such foul speech. So he has never he has never sworn, and there are no swear words in here. So he's on trial for what now? For some kind of insurrection? Well, now, there was an enormous jailbreak uh, in the year... Uh, two, 2001. 2000, yeah. Well, he's in, been in prison for a year. An enormous jailbreak, uh, and there was this huge maximum security prison across a small lake in upstate New York from a little college, Tarkington College. There's 10,000 convicts in the prison and across the lake 300 students in this college. The prison and called Athena. Athena. Uh, well, the town was Athena. Yeah, uh, reminiscent of another prison at the time having another Hellenic-sounding name. Yes, well, Attica. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that was... Uh, terrible black mark against Nelson Rockefeller as his reputation might be quite pure now if it weren't for that uh, one hideous mistake that led to the deaths of so many. So there is Athena. We got, But he's accused of it because many of the prisoners were black. 
And yet you say somewhere in the book they couldn't believe that this was planned so well, that blacks had the capacity to do that. It had to be a white guy. To yeah, well, them. that's what they assume. Is that, yes, a white guy had to have planned this. And, of course, he was virtually the only white guy on the pro <laughs> on the property, and he uh, was an educated man, educated government expense. I have to explain, why don't you explain how he became a teacher at the prison. He was originally a teacher at Tarkington College. We have to talk about Tarkington College. Well, Tarkington College, uh, a college in upstate New York on one of the Finger Lakes there, uh, which is for uh, rich kids who are going to inherit a great deal of property and responsibility and who have flunked their college boards and, and can't get admitted anywhere, uh, dyslexic in one reason or another. And so this college exists. Uh, and in, so that these people can have attended something that looks like a college. And uh, uh, the... That, what do they call the learning disabled children of the rich? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Hartke is, is head of the physics department there, and all the departments are on a very low level. It's, it's essentially just remedial everything because many of these people can't read or write very well or even at all. <laughs> and uh, he, of course, has had, had a pretty mediocre education, too, as having come through West Point, which, which isn't, which isn't uh, very great academically. But after he comes, he is so humiliated by our loss in Vietnam and uh, by the loss of honor. And incidentally, I like West Point guys. My wife, Jill Kremitz, and I started to do a book about West Point for a while. It fell through for one reason or another. But I really liked the guys on the level of, of captain and lieutenant mm -hmm. colonel up there. They were interesting and nice. But they had a strong sense of honor. And many of them felt mm -hmm. that, that they had lost their honor mm -hmm. uh, in Vietnam, and particularly the evacuation of the embassy. Yeah, of course, you tell about the nature, too, of uh, death and murder. Uh, yes, Attica. I mean, rather, I should say, Athena. Yeah. And the guys killed a lot of people. You say, but you, Eugene Debs Hartke, you knocked off quite a few yourself. Well, while Hartke is in prison, he starts wondering how many people he actually has killed. Made a list. And uh, with a lot of time on his hands, and it's all... He d had three tours of duty over there in Vietnam, and so he makes a list of... Of not he doesn't include probables as people he heard yell who seemed to be hit or people who seemed to go down, but... Uh, people he, he could, whose bodies he could see afterwards. And uh, so he finally comes, realizes that he has killed more people than any mass murderer in this prison where he <laughs> has been a teacher. He, he went by, he was kicked out of uh, Tarkington College. We'll come to how it happened because yeah. that involves a member of the Board of Trustees' daughter. Yes. Remember, Board of Trustees, a figure who might be reminiscent of a real life figure. He was, his name was, uh, uh, what was his name again? Well, I've forgotten what his name is, but it was modeled. Jason Wilder. Yes, well, it, yes. And, and Jason Wilder had, it was something you might describe as a polysyllabic Neanderthal. Yes. That is, Jason Wilder was polysyllables. Yes. And he was a columnist and had a host of a show. I had a talk show, and uh, the tenor of the talk show was that the, uh, the poor was, the poor are what is wrong with the world. Is the, is the, you know, <laughs> if we could somehow uh, do without the drag of the poor, is, is this would be a whole lot better planet. Uh, and one, of, he's a member of the board, and what, his daughter. His daughter is, uh, well, he has said his daughter. Kimberly. Yeah, his daughter Kimberly, who is dyslexic, uh, is given, is asked by her father to seek anybody who is speak on the faculty who's speaking badly of the United States, and particularly the leadership of the United States. And on occasion, Hartke has done this, particularly when half in the bag, uh, particularly describing the humiliation uh, uh, at the end of the Vietnam War and finally the pointlessness of the whole war. And she gets this on tape, and so the... Uh, Board of Trustees fires him for, for lowering the morale of the students, making them doubt the wisdom of the leadership of the country. And the only job he can get is teaching at the prison across yeah. the lake. By the way, Hartke is writing this memoir, Eugene Debs Hartke, because yeah. his grandfather was old-time socialist, 
Debs coming from Indiana, which is Kurt Vonnegut's home state. And so he meets a number of other people along the line, but he goes back and forth, does he not, in time? Because yes. he's, he's writing this on scraps of paper, perhaps. The, yes, perhaps well, he, he may be slightly cracked the way a yeah. lot of people are at the end of their lives. But he is there in prison, and uh, uh, he wanders around the prison yard or whatever, picking up pieces of paper of, of all sorts of sizes, and big pieces of wrapping paper, calling cards, whatever. And uh, each, whatever each piece of paper holds, that is a section of the book. And, and so, so in reading the book, Hocus Pocus by Kurt Vonnegut, you see this as, as though you are reading fragments. There, Some of the sequences may be t 15 lines, some may be three pages, depending on the size of the piece of paper yes. you got. So I say. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is uh, Eugene Debs Hartke's memoir. Yes, but he has numbered the pieces of paper, obviously with the intention that it should be a book. Yeah, and it's, he uses the numeral. He doesn't use the word well, O-N-E. It's one. Yes. Well, there are a lot of things. And, and uh, I, I will tell you why. Have I got time to say why? Yeah, I did? right after, right after uh -huh. this pause, we yeah. resume with Kurt Vonnegut. And it's a book, by the way, that's fantastic to read wow. out loud. Kurt Vonnegut and his most recent novel, Hocus Pocus, that deals with more than just a guy named Eugene Debs Hartke and a kind of nuttiness that perhaps may be pervasive in our whole society, and you even beyond this country. Mm -hmm. we, we pick it up. Eugene Debs Hartke. He's on trial for insurrection, and in the meantime, he's writing these scraps. He's picking up scraps of paper and doing this memoir, which uh, Kurt is talking. Yeah. Well, of course, the, my, many of my books are full of mannerisms like this. It's Slaughter, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, for instance, I kept repeating, every time anybody or anything died, was so it goes. So it goes. And so here I've got these very short takes, ostensibly written on pieces of paper of different sizes. This annoys some people. It annoys Christopher Lehmannhout, for instance, <laughs> who regards this as, as, point as, as talking trickery. talking about the daily critic of the New York but, Times. But he was, regards uh, this as trickery. Can you imagine yeah. anybody in the arts using trickery? Yeah. What could be more dishonest, <laughs> really? But anyway, new. I do it, Stubbs, <laughs> and as have these annoying mannerisms. Uh, in order to make people read what I'm writing because if people will turn on the automatic pilot if they can and go flying right through, <laughs> right through a book and actually learn almost nothing from it. And it's almost, uh, I've been a teacher and these mannerisms, uh, as though i am suddenly hit my desk yeah. with a ruler or something like that, and just there wake is a, up. And there is a phrase here, and we have mm. come to that phrase, and it's pervasive in the uh. book, used by a brother-in-law, used by the brother-in-law of Eugene Debs, uh. a guy named Jack Patton, who is the uh, husband of the nutty wife and the son of the nutty mother-in-law of Gene Hartke. Mm. And this guy always says, most horrendous. I laughed like hell. Yeah, I had to laugh like hell. I had to laugh like hell. Yeah, and these are describing horrible human situations, <laughs> usually. And this man, in fact, has never been heard to laugh or or even smile. But in describing some terrible event he's been through, he says afterwards, "I had to laugh like hell." So, aren't we talking about a kind of nuttiness that you connect him? That is Eugene Debs Hartke. Uh -huh connects him, Jack Patton, his brother-in-law, who obviously is somewhere in some other planet, and perhaps all of us are. A great soldier, by the way. A great soldier, yeah. which adds to it, of course, yeah. and the leading and the leader of the prison break, uh, a black guy by the name of Alton Darwin. Yeah. Both are similarly, shall we say, strange. Yeah, well, I, and uh, I think I'm, I'm trying to make a point that... Uh, uh, our culture is making us stranger and stranger all the time. I think these people... A perfect case in point. Yeah. Uh, Alton Darwin, who is the black convict, yeah. is leader of the parade, and is a man, has a Napoleonic complex. Yeah. And the prison break, which is crazy wild prison break, people are killed on both sides. It looks like it's surrounded now by the National Guard. They're having a ghost of a chance. Suppose you read that and connect that with... All right, well, Alton Darwin has declared this little college town a separate country 
and they're surrounded not only by the National Guard but by the 82nd Airborne. And Alton Darwin was never worried, no matter how bad things got. He laughed when he heard that paratroops advancing on foot had surrounded the prison across the lake and on our side were digging into the west and south of Scipio, which is the college town. State police and vigilantes had already set up a roadblock at the head of the lake. Alton Darwin laughed as though he had achieved a great victory. I knew people like that in Vietnam. Jack Patton had that sort of courage. I could be as brave as Jack over there. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I was shot at more and killed more people. But I was worried sick most of the time. Jack never worried. He told me so. I asked him how he could be that way. And he said, I think I must have a screw loose. I can't care about what might happen to me or to anyone. Alton Darwin had the same untightened screw. You no, know, continue because it I, picks up. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Alton Darwin had the same untightened screw. He was a convicted mass murderer, but never showed any remorse that I could see. During my last year in Vietnam, I too reacted at press briefings as though our defeats were victories. But I was under orders to do that. That wasn't my natural disposition. Alton Darwin, and this was true of Jack Patton too, spoke of trivial and serious matters in the same tone of voice, with the same gestures and facial expressions. Nothing mattered more or less than anything else. Now, that last part, I continue, oh, by the way, you spoke of others who saw part of our tradition to see uh, disaster as victory. Yeah. And you speak of Custer, <laughs> of Robert E. Lee, of Westmoreland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the last thing uh, about trivia, now we come to today. These two guys, who obviously are Flacola somewhere else, see the trivia and the important as the same. Now, isn't that exactly what we have today? Well, you know, they could be right and we could be wrong, studs, <laughs> to think that one thing matters more than another one. I, I got a letter one time from a sociologist at the University of New Mexico who said, I, I, I can explain everything. And he told me to get a book called a Mask of Sanity, which is a medical book, and it's about pathological personalities. And these people are very presentable, know the consequences of their acts, and do not give a damn, and do not care what happens to themselves or to anyone, and therefore they are fearless. And uh, these people rise very high in all every sort of organization, because they're so much more confident and braver than anybody else. Are you saying we're in the hands of sociopaths? Well, I think we may be, as I think they often rise to the tops. Uh, yes, I think it's very common. I, I could name a couple of past presidents, and I guess you <laughs> name. <laughs> I, I see no evidence that, yeah. that they are, are particularly sensitive to what happens uh, not only to us, but to, the, to themselves. Well, that, doesn't that have to, if I could just... Uh, call upon Reagan's trickle-down theory. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that wealth will trickle down well, some, for some reason it hasn't. Something else has trickled down, a kind of nuttiness you're talking about, a kind of mean-spiritedness, perhaps. Yeah. And that, ha that has trickled down. The trickle-down theory is working in a wholly unexpected, not unexpected, but a different way. Have you had him on your show? Who? Is Dutch Reagan? No. <laughs> oh, you're familiar with him, Dutch Reagan. Eh? <laughs> well, he was a broadcaster not very know, far yeah, from here at one time. But coming back, yeah. again, we speak of banality and triviality yeah. equated with what may alter our lives. And you're saying the trivia, indeed. Well, I, uh, politicians, it may be part of their trade to trivialize other human activities in order to make themselves seem all important. I am going to tell you what the most enchanting, important, poetical event has been in human history since the birth of Christ, which has gone completely unnoticed. And what is that? Studs, on this planet, human beings built this mechanical bird which flew to every planet in the solar system, visited their moons, sent us photographs of them, 
And now it has left, but before it left, it looked back at us and said goodbye. We made this thing. This is mar as marvelous as Noah's dove. Mm -hmm. He sent out, and Noah's dove brought back. Noah's dove brought with peace. No, that there was land. Land, there, yeah. And uh, uh, but our dove flew out and told us the truth about the whole rest of our solar system. This is the most beautiful event in human history. We did it. Mm -hmm. And this thing has left the solar system. It's got, headed God knows where. Dan Rather didn't think it was remarkable. Peter Jennings thought it was a piece of, of small news for that day. Is McNeil and Lair just, it was a footnote to that particular day, and the President of the United States proposed an amendment to the United States Constitution that would make it illegal to burn an American flag. But this is the most gorgeous thing that mankind has done so far. Don't you think so? It depends how it's used, how that gorgeous thing is used. Oh, but it was miraculous what it did, and what a symbol. Yeah, it's a symbol of the imagination of man. Oh, yes. Or the flight of man or the vision of man. Yeah. Well, who would have thought it was possible, and by God, we did it. Yeah, but that same, that same mechanical bird we know has resulted in Hiroshima, too. Oh, yes. No, but this is, that was a yeah. perfectly... It, it, nothing can forgive Hiroshima or a lot of other yeah. things. But, uh, no, this was the most benign, yeah. it is. helpful animal. Which leads, animal. of course, to uh, Gene Hartke, your protagonist. Mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut is my guest, and the book is Hocus Pocus. And as you can guess, it's a very provocative book. And, by the way, it's one that's, I should say this in a strange way, hilarious, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's reading out loud stuff, but... Gene Hartke comes across papers called The Elders, The Protocols of the Elders of Trafalmador. Yeah. Now, Trafalmador, and they have a theory. that Who are the Trafalmadorians? Well, this is a science fiction story he yeah. finds in a girly magazine. Oh, it's called, the, what's that girly magazine called? It's called Black Garter Belt, and, <laughs> and he got it out in Vietnam, and it wound up in his footlocker and, uh, long after the war. Uh, but they've filled the space between the girly pictures with uh, important with with short stories or whatever. But there is a story about uh, the protocols of the elders of Tralfamador, and this is a paraphrase of the protocols of the elder of Zion, which is a paranoid document forgery from Tsarist times about how the Jews in fact, dominate the whole world with international cooperation. But in Black Garter Belt, this story is about uh, intelligences out in the universe who have no bodies. Uh, they're sort of fibers there, uh, but they want the universe to be populated by more life. And uh, so they are... Uh, meet there to plan of how life on Earth could be distributed to other parts of the universe. And they decide that the most practical way to do this would be in the form of germs, very small organisms. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're much too big. It's preposterous to, to shoot animals like us through space, given the, how much we have to eat every day and mm -hmm. the size of our bowel mm -hmm. movements mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. And what the elders of Tralfamador decide is that uh, they want to create germs, have germs created that are so strong that they can stand space travel. Uh, and the idea is that sooner or later a meteor will hit us and pick up some of these germs, possibly in the spore state, and carry them out to the rest of the universe. That's the way life is going to go out from Earth to mm -hmm. the rest of the universe. Uh, but the germs are here on Earth are, are you know, leading country club lives and, and <laughs> <laughs> are not getting tough at all. And so they, the elders of, of Tralfamador make people more and more inventive and make the planet more and more uninhabitable. <laughs> it's get more poisons up on the surface mm -hmm. and, and get some radioactivity going and all that to toughen up the germs. And that's what we are, is, and we're also the host to the germs. Uh, but our, our fighting diseases, too, are, are actually taking medicines and all that, are just toughening up the germs for their space travel. Uh, uh, but, they, but these elders of, of Tralfamador inspire us to be inventive and also to be paranoid and prepare for war and all that in order to make the 
whole planet as poisonous as possible. Yeah, so therefore, uh, they seem to know something. Oh, yes. Uh, they know. They, they know, of course, we know. It's f funny about the elders of Trufalmador and Harley Shapley, the astronomer, because Harley Shapley was saying, if World War Three comes and we, mankind, destroy it, so the survivors will be the cockroaches and the kelp. Yeah. So uh, these guys... Trafalgar are trying to make these survivors stronger, are they? And not? smaller too, because and, they have to be small and, 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 smaller and take one hell of a ride on a on a glancing meteor. But there's one part uh, that the elders say. It appeared the elders believe that people here on Earth believe anything about themselves, no matter how preposterous, as long as they're flattering, and they put the idea into Earthlings' heads that the whole universe had been created by one big male animal who looked just like them. He sat on a throne, and then when people died, they got to sit on those other thrones forever because they were such close relatives of the creator. The people he just ate it up. So they got an idea that the people here are pretty gullible. Oh, yes, uh, and I, I think we surely are. And, uh, uh, well, uh, that image was taken from the revelations, uh, according to... Yeah. St. John. Yeah. So we have an observer here. Now, let's face this. Let's get this now. I'm talking to Kurt Vonnegut, and uh, the book, the novel we're talking about is Hocus Pocus and Putnam the Publishers. And the narrator, the first person telling the story, is uh, being tried for the insurrection we'll, we've touched upon. Perhaps you're more about. His name is Eugene Debs Hartke. The book, by the way, is dedicated to Eugene V. Debs. And he made a comment about uh, wherever people are. Oh, it's a stunning quotation. Yeah. Why don't you read it? Yeah, well, the most famous. Uh, Debs, incidentally, died in 1926. He was the son of a Swiss baker who settled in Terre Haute. And Debs went crazy about railroads the same way Twain went crazy mm -hmm. about side wheelers. All right, but here is, here is Debs' most famous statement. While there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While there is a soul in prison, I am not free. Americans used to talk that way all the time. I know. And uh, they stopped it. Well, that's, another, that's, by, that's one of the reasons for this book, I believe. Yeah. And the book is Hocus Pocus. And uh, I think it's fantastic. Sure. You're talking about that, that inscription, the beginning, the epigraph a quote from Gene Debs about people talking, a lot of hot conversation and passionate conversation about the plight of man and those who are up against it and old wobblies and union guys scrapping finks and all sorts of hot arguments. We hardly hear that. Someone said American people have lost their sense of outrage. Well, they really have, and, and I, I don't know where the blame should be put, but I surely miss it. I was born in 1922. When were you born? 1912, the uh, year of the Titanic. And when Debs polled a million votes in prison. Yeah. No, no, he, no, he pulled 1920. Out, no, 1920, I'm sorry. But he ran for president in 12 the first time, yeah. I think. But, uh, God, when I was a kid, the uh, talk about social justice uh, was so exciting and so in the open. And... Uh, uh, now you scarcely dare speak that way. Uh, if you do, you're not called uh, Kami or Pinko anymore. That's old hat now since the evil empire seems uh, to have disappeared. You're called either a flake or something of that well, sort. Well, you're called immature, impractical, immature. A, a dreamer uh, or whatever. But I, th I think something uh, very sinister is is happening is, is I... I think what's going on is uh, we're fibrillating between whether this is a white man's country or not. I think it's just so strongly racist. Uh, and uh, to express compassion is to say it isn't a white man's country. We also to express a kind of a naivete, yeah. too. Yeah, it's, come on, you're white too. Is it, do you, yeah, how can you say that? Yeah, I remember uh, Norman Mailer and I were once together on with William Buckley on his talk show. And what he seemed to be saying to us was, don't you realize you must play your part in the class war? Because here you are, you've risen in society to this <laughs> level, you know, and you really must do your part now. 
which leads to a... Uh, I'm sorry. No, but uh, well, the secret ingredient of Mailer and me is that we were both privates in the war for three <laughs> three years, and so our sympathies still lie with uh, the I'm, people at the bottom. I, I'm thinking about, uh, on the very point you're making, this guy Jason Wilder. Mm-hmm. Need, we need not say who he may resemble, mm-hmm. but Jason Wilder uh, would call people on this program who he could pretty well handle and those who would knock him off the perch were hardly ever on. But there was one guy whom uh, a member of the Board of Trustees named Bergeron, yeah. whom, uh, whom Gene Hartke considered an ally when he was on trial mm-hmm. he's before he's going to be fired uh, by the Board of Trustees yeah. to make in trouble. Uh, this guy Bergeron was on a show with Jason Wilder, and he took him to, I wish I could find that. Oh, here it is, 224. Why don't you read that? Because that kind of thing people I have to refresh about. my memory. I guess it was a singer, no. but I've forgotten what I, it was. He, th- they were discussing uh, environment or something, yeah. and he just took them apart, and the quote yeah. was great. I can't seem to find it now. But that's one of the uh, things you dream about <laughs> doing it. Today. Well, I guess we, we can't find it here. No. I looked on But you can talk about it, though. Remember yeah. Well, we can talk about the... Uh, the whole conservative package, uh, you can only be one of two things in this country now. You can either be a liberal or a conservative. And I think of both people from Vietnam finally arriving here. They immediately have to declare themselves, you know, <laughs> they're only one of two things you can be. And this is largely for the convenience of the press, I think. Uh, to Good. say that the liberals won, you know, the liberals are on the run or the conservatives have had a great victory. But the fact is both words uh, have little meaning today because uh-huh. the issues are hardly discussed. The word liberal is used uh-huh. as a pejorative as it was by Bush and the other guy didn't even answer. Yeah, Instead he of did taking not a dictionary, dare use it. Suppose you took a dictionary. Uh-huh. The two definitions, liberal and dictionary. This is so obvious, uh, but it was not used by Dukakis. There's a dictionary. First definition, liberal. Generous. I know that I remember mm-hmm. generous in spirit, giving. We pride ourselves on being so generous a country. Yeah. You want us to be pebble hearted or something like that, mean spirited? Second, liberal, tolerant of the opinions of others. Want us to be totalitarian? No, on the contrary, I'm not really <laughs> liberal. So you see, there's a mis- there's a perversion of language as well. Well, I think the press was a big help there, oh, yeah. where, where they would say that. Dukakis would not dare say the L word. Yeah, the L word, the yeah. press called it. Which also, uh, is there well, a word in here about the press? Well, I guess throughout there is that. Yeah, but the, the press the, itself. Well, you think about what the conservatives feel that, feel that everybody who wants to own an AK-47 should have one, you know, and you wonder what the, what the radical... <laughs> What the radical but idea the, might be. But there's something else going on in your book that uh, uh, puts the dot to this thing or cuts it off, and that is the country itself. Those who are being, it's, it's being sold to other countries. Now that uh, school, well, the prison a, is taken over by the uh, Japanese as a business venture. Well, there are business, uh, there are prisons being run as, as businesses yeah, now. So now we call privatization, we call yeah. it. Yeah, but I, well, I'm startled in, uh, uh, that it's possible to sell this country to uh, other um, nationals. What Benedict Arnold is a great villain for having tried to sell West Point. Well, what do you think of somebody who sells Rockefeller Center, you know? So or <laughs> in, in, in Hocus Pocus, uh, everything is owned by somebody uh, outside. Now, there was a Louisville hospital owned by a Japanese syndicate. Yeah. And Warden Matsumoto, a very nice guy, by the yeah. way, who's a survivor of Hiroshima, we've got to yeah. come to that, is now the warden, a nice sort of guy, of uh, where of this guy, Gene is... Of prison, and, and, and he's running prison. it uh, at a profit. And there's someone, other places, taken over by a German company. And there was something that was made by the German oven makers of Auschwitz oh. who... Well, this was A.J. Topfen's son. It was yeah, a real AJ. corporation, which, oh, real. which made the yeah. uh, <laughs> which made the uh, ovens for Auschwitz. And if you look at photographs of Auschwitz, uh, of the ovens and all that, it says A.J. Topfen's son <laughs> right on it. And uh, uh, so I've got them in here as they are still making 
state-of-the-art crematoria. After they were buying assets, some people bought the state-of-the-art state <laughs> crematoria from the South. But that well, they had more, had more experience than anybody else, and this was one business the Japanese were not going into, as the Japanese themselves were buying top uh, crematoria rather than trying to make their own. So these guys who are big-timers, are selling things to other, uh, and as a result of which, oh. this country's be, being in your book, but oh. unfortunately, your book and the reality are very often fused. Yeah, well, I, uh, what I predict is in the book is that they, by the year 2000, the Japanese will have gotten sick of owning us, as they will have bought most of it, be, because the, uh, the American people come along with all these properties, you know, with their with their needs, with their plaints and all that. And so I, I predict that the Japanese will walk out on us in about 10 more years. You're tired of this. You're getting tired, and I yeah. think they will hang on to Oahu as, as the British have hung on to Bermuda as a <laughs> reminder of their days of imperial glory. You know, the funny thing about Kurt Vonnegut's book, and it is funny, I suppose just a Samuel Beckett is funny in a way. It's funny as Mark Twain is, mm -hmm. at the same time, biting. And so the line of Mark goofiness at times is kind of humorous. I mean, we know that's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. But sometimes you hear loonies talking, and it's tragic, first to be uh -huh. loony, but very often it's just very, very funny, and you laugh. Uh -huh. And I get often bawled out for that, for being cruel. Uh, well, you know, uh, the only way you can make people laugh out loud is to talk about horrible things a little beforehand. Mm -hmm. Uh, they have so much anxiety to get rid of, and, and uh, uh, I don't consider Bob. I consider Bob Hope a very nice fella and a, and a mat funny man. matinee uh, uh, charmer and all that, but not a real comedian because he does not mention death or sickness or uh, a, a terrible loss of any kind or the end of the world. Uh, and Lenny so Bruce. Yeah, but Lenny Bruce talked about all of that, and Lenny Bruce got belly laughs. And one reason Bob Hope likes to entertain the troops, I think, is because troops will laugh at anything. They're so scared, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So we come, to, for example, we come to uh, before he gets that job, he's kicked out of the university, the college, Tottenham College, and he gets that job at the prison to teach the prisoners. Because he encounters a guy named John Donner, and of course the uh, name Donner rings a bell immediately. Doesn't yeah, it? well, the uh, guy claims his name is John Donner, and so uh, Hart asks him if he's any relation to the famous Donner Party, where it was cannibals. Uh, there was a case of cannibalism on this western uh, wagon train, which got caught in a blizzard uh, just short of California, and this guy, who claims his name is Donner. Uh, doesn't know anything about it, which leads Hartke to believe. But then somehow Hartke starts thinking, gee, you know, uh, the Donahue show, the yeah. Oprah Winfrey show, discuss everything. I mean, it was incest uh, some time huh. ago, and one of the children, one of the sisters, a deeply incestuous theme, is shocked that her brother refused to appear on the program. <laughs> He's on, refused to be on television. <laughs> and so Gene Hartke was suggesting the subject of cannibalism yeah. uh, for the two. They haven't been not yet has they haven't. People, eating people been yeah. discussed. Well, I'm a slightly vested interest here now because I had a daughter who was married to Geraldo Rivera. At one no. <laughs> That's the truth. But one of the things in the book is that what Hartke says after thinking about the Donner Party, and, the, and of course the only way a number of them survived was by eating the others. And Hartke says that people who eat people are the luckiest people in the world. <laughs> so we come to... Hartke himself and other people, his brother-in-law, Jack Patton, mm -hmm. who was always saying, well, I laughed like hell. Mm -hmm. And he has also, uh, as far as I'm the board of trustees, he has a um, uh, wife and mother-in-law who were somewhere else, uh, another planet. Yes. Well, they, they both, uh, it turns out that, uh, that there, there are bad genes here, and uh, Hartke, right after he graduates from West Point, marries his sister of his best friend, and only much later finds out that there's hereditary uh, uh, insanity in the family. Uh, 
I don't know why the hell I put that in the story. I seem to me I had enough yeah. going anyway. <laughs> but there's something, but throughout, you talk about the nature of the world and values, or mm. of this country specifically, since here, but and history and what's happened throughout history of people knocking off people and yeah. the cruelties. And there's a Twainian touch throughout there. It's you. So obviously, Twain has played a tremendous role. Oh, I of assume. course, and, and I think of a, a very American writer. And what is so startling is that he holds up so well. And I think of a man I knew slightly who lived just a block from me in Indianapolis was Booth Tarkington when he was home. And he made the terrible mistake of using black people for comic relief, as Herman and Vermin, mm -hmm. uh, the two uh, black boys who play with uh, Penrod and Sam. And that uh, destroyed the value of so mm -hmm. much of so much of Tarkington's mm -hmm. uh, value. And uh, of course, it was a perfectly innocent mistake for him yeah. to make, but it's interesting that, yeah. that Twain sensed this would be quite a serious mistake to make. Oh, Twain understood that. I mean, I mean yeah. Twain spotted that then. Yeah. Yeah. Twain always spots things. And by the way, your college is named Tarkington. Yeah. I suppose you did just words came well, it's, a, it's such a pretty name, and, and uh, much, much of what he wrote uh, when I came home from the, from the war. It's, Tarkington was very old, and for my first Christmas home, we went over and sang carols in his, in his uh, front, yeah. front lawn. I was thinking you mentioned Twain holds up today. Uh -huh. You know, Hal Holbrook for years did magnificently Mark Twain. Uh -huh. uh, his Hal Holbrook, then young, putting a remarkable makeup, becoming this old man, this great one with a cigar a and white very suit. Very good job, I think. Well, fantastic. But he yeah. says, he's in, whenever he's in doubt of something, doesn't he picks up Mark Twain? Yeah. And damned if there isn't something that concerning what he has in mind about. Yeah. Well, uh, he, he was... He was a, an American, too. He was perhaps the first yeah. American. Yeah. And, uh, and has been a model for a lot of us since. But you're talking, I'm talking about Twain and, of course, some of his comments about Thanksgiving and American Indians and pilgrims and everything else and uh, about Philippine ventures. It could be a, he could be writing today, as you say, he's contemporary. Yeah, well, things certainly haven't gotten any better. I don't know that they've gotten any worse. Is they, they were certainly very But here's the time. part that hits me, many, as many sequences do. The trustees of the board, of the school, are a certain kind as trustees are in most places. Mm. But guys have picked up a buck or two and who are in charge. Not overly bright, but they have power. And across the lake is the prison of the convicts. And perhaps thoughts about that that Gene Hartke has. Why don't you set the well, scene for that? Well, if the trustees were bad, the convicts were worse. I would be the last person to say otherwise. They were devastators of their own communities with gunfights and robberies and rapes and the merchandising of brain-busting chemicals and so on but at least they saw what they were doing, whereas people like the trustees had a lot in common with B-52 bombardiers way up in the stratosphere. They seldom saw the devastation they caused as they moved the huge portion of this country's wealth they controlled from here to there. And that really is... Uh, people, people of wealth now... Uh, no longer have employees. Is they no longer have all they have is is pieces of paper. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about that thing about uh, bombardiers way up in the stratosphere. Seldom mm -hmm. saw the devastation they caused. So at least the whole subject: of what is terrorism? You yeah. see, we associate terrorism with person to person, a guy throwing <laughs> a bomb or shooting a guy, but never from something in the sky, napalming a village. Yeah. Well, that's most. Uh, a very curious ethical scheme. I don't know how it came into being, but if if you do it, if you do it with high tech, uh, it's quite acceptable. And yeah. of course, we we killed Gaddafi's adopted daughter, didn't we? Same age as my adopted daughter, incidentally, uh, with a multi-million dollar rocket and all that, and also hit the French French embassy. So, <laughs> but, so it, but it was all okay because it was done with this very clean machinery. Yeah, yeah. Ah, ah, that's it. Clean machinery. So now yeah. you're talking about high technology, aren't yeah. you? Have you ever have you ever had the guy who who dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima on? 
No, I had a guy who was a navigator of the second one. No. Uh, not the Enola Gray, but the other one. Yeah. Box something, box car. Did they think about it much? No. Yeah. No, he didn't never give much of a thought. This guy, he's a farmer, Indiana, by the way. Yeah. He was a navigator on the second one, mm-hmm. boxcar or something. Yeah, well, it, it is. Uh, you get absolutely. But Leggett, Leggett the, 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 the pilot of the Enola Gray, yeah. not a second thought. Yeah. Well, for that matter, little Harry. Harry Truman said, I didn't lose one night's sleep over it. Yeah. Well, of course, Winston Churchill, when he was, uh, what, home secretary, I guess, uh, had to say that every hanging had to go ahead. He was the last person to say, okay, this person hanged. And uh, somebody asked him one time if this bothered him at all. He said, no, not a bit. It would have bothered a lot of people, I think. We're talking to Kurt Vonnegut, and we're talking about a book, as you can gather, quite quite a stunner, Hocus Pocus. And I I, I say this again, it's a funny book, because a while ago he spoke what humor is, too. I was going to say it's best sense, and in its worst sense. But it's a funny book, and it's a very provocative and pertinent one, I think. And when you think about a great deal, too, Putnam, the publishers. There are some good people in this book who get the short end of the stick. In fact, somewhere along the line, you mm. speak of that minority, these enclaves throughout history. Yes, well, I, uh, I got a letter uh, a few months ago from a woman who's about to have a baby, and uh, she asked me if I didn't think it was terrible to bring a child into a, a world that's dangerous and mean and all that. And I said, well, what makes life almost worthwhile is the saints you meet. And you can meet them anywhere, and it's simply startling. And I mean, they're very often strangers. And, and uh, many people find it very easy and natural uh, to be virtuous, and, and uh, that is so refreshing. Well, the man to whom you dedicated the book Gene Debs. Eugene Debs was such a person, yeah. And, uh, well, there was another man I knew in Indianapolis. uh, It was Powers Hapgood. Did you ever hear of him? Oh, you bet. And, uh, well, I did meet him. I didn't know he was in Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, But, hell, he was a graduate of Harvard from a very rich family, and he became a coal miner and an organizer for... Of course, there are these people whose names we don't know. Yeah. We know of Debs, of course, but those whose names we don't know throughout... I do run into a good number of them in the stuff I'm working on on occasion. More than uh, one occasion. Oh, well, they, well they, saints are so common. I met one here in Chicago at Cook County Hospital, the guy named Bob Maslansky, who was treating the poor people there. Now he's head of all addiction services at Bellevue in New York. This is what the man does with Which his life. Which leads to a guy in a terrible position, a good man, and that's the Japanese warden, yeah. Warden Matsumoto. Oh, what story, his story. He was the one of the little boy survivors of Hiroshima. He was a Hiroshima survivor. Yeah. And I, in fact, met a, a Hiroshima survivor whose story was Matsumoto's in this book. Is This guy I met in Japan was playing soccer with his class there. Hiroshima, the ball went into a ditch. He went into the ditch after the ball, bent over to pick it up, and whoof. Yeah. The bomb went off, and, and when he came back up, Everybody was dead. Everything was flattened, and so I tell his story in here. Uh, but he is finally uh, sick of humanity, uh, uh, sick of all of us, uh, and uh, commits suicide at the base. Commits Harry Carey at the at the base of the monument uh, for Ground Zero at Hiroshima. Yeah. But I, I think we are. I, he he thought we were contemptible animals, and and uh, he says he would rather have been a bird. And uh, I think we're contemptible animals too. You know, about the human race. Yeah, the human species. Well, wasn't that Mark Twain's phrase? We're the only the damnable. species. The, the damned human race. The mm-hmm. only members of the animal. Ki- By the way, we are members of the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. We are. So look, a man behaves like mm-hmm. an animal. No, the human being is a member of the animal kingdom. We're the only ones who can blush. That's it. Yeah. And the only ones who have reason to. That's yeah. it. Yeah, well, that, yeah. that pretty much. <laughs> 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 and, and so, you know, he's talking about the big shots for whom he works and does a good mm. job. That's pretty, that's pretty strong stuff, but it, it's pretty hard to deny, is it not? Making money. Oh, yes. Well, the, the warden, uh, Japanese warden, is Warden Matsumoto, 
is running this damn prison, and he's worked for the Sony Corporation, incidentally, and he ran a hospital for profit out in Louisville mm -hmm. before he took over the prison. But he is talking about the American ruling class, and, and the Japanese are, are beginning to realize they've been had here, is, is being allowed to buy all this stuff. says, what a clever trap your ruling class set for us, he went on. First the atomic bomb, now this. Trap, I echo echoed wonderingly. That's Hartke talking. They looted your public and corporate treasuries and turned your industries over to nincompoops, he said. Then they had your government borrow so heavily from us that we had no choice but to send over an army of occupation in business suits. Never before has a ruling class of a country found a way to stick other countries with all the responsibilities their wealth might imply and still remain rich beyond the dreams of avarice. No wonder they thought the comatose Ronald Reagan was a great president. <laughs> I think the indictment is just. Yeah. Well, and he goes on. He says, uh, when he was uh, running the hospital for profit, he said, I only wish our chairman of the board back in Tokyo could spend just one hour with me in our emergency room turning away dying people because they could not afford our services. So cover that aspect, too. Yeah. Guys dying, how much, how much money you got? Well, this oh, really goes well. on. This really goes on. And, uh, and so the obvious question to ask Kurt Vonnegut, you now, mm -hmm. aside from we haven't talked about a number of fascinating people in the book, the various women that, that Hartke knows and has been with, and there's a very moving sequence about an illegitimate son of his who appears, who is also a gentle guy who is kicked out of a community and destroyed and is leaving, and another who is found to be homosexual commits suicide in a town that destroys him. And so we have the good people also who are taking a beating. The, but so we come at the end to, to you, Kurt Vonnegut. You're, you're not, I don't want you to be Nostradamus, but what is the way out? The way out is yes. to, the way out, uh, everybody needs an extended family, just as everybody needs vitamin C, and uh, otherwise we get very sick. And so I think we have to form extended families, of uh, neighborhoods or whatever, as a government is not our friend, is not going to take care of us, uh, and probably can't. And the government itself is a family which has all it can do to take care of itself. So I, I would see us uh, forming small survival units, not at war with each other particularly, but uh, uh, being compassionate toward one another. Is, uh, we are in a depression. I think you know what one smells like, and I do. <laughs> and uh, uh, the way we'll survive this is by taking care of each other and not by uh, killing each other. I remember asking my uncle, how the hell did the black people get through the depression? Is the white people were having <laughs> trouble enough and, and nobody even offered to help the black people. And uh, it must be an old quotation. I don't know where it comes from, but the poor take care of the poor. Yeah. Oh, that's always been the case. And uh, we must, we must yeah. do this. As we must take care of each other. One black guy said to me, Burke, I do think it's something called hard times. He said, uh, "We were born in depression, man." Yeah. <laughs> and in any event, poor taking care of poor is very often the case. Yeah. Perhaps end it with the last sentence of the book, and we'll go into that blues. All right. Well, uh, Hartke, at at the end of his life, uh, close to it, looks back and says, "Well, you know." Just because some of us can read and write and do a little math, that doesn't mean we deserve to conquer the universe.